You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? UVX10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today this is a very special episode with a very lovely man. This is Jeff Shaw, a comedian uh, who you may not, a comedian of whom I should say you may not have heard. And um, I am a real fan not only of his work but also of his approach to comedy. Now I'm going to read from the show notes here because I've written exactly what I want to say and um, so I'm just going to read it to you. Did you know that there are show notes? Not everyone does. I, I bother writing them and very few people seem to even be aware of them. Here's what I'd like to say about Jeff. In 1987, Jeff Shaw decided he was going to do comedy for a living. He meant it. And that is a reference, as many of you will recognise, to Anvil, the story of Anvil, about a band who inspired a load of um, brilliant uh, heavy metal bands in their early years, um, but then did not go on to uh, achieve the same dizzy heights as Metallica and Megadeth and all these other people that were inspired. Um, So with Shades of the story of Anvil, this interview follows a man who has picked himself up and started again over four decades, each time achieving a version of his dream and surviving the paradigm shifts that have accompanied his every decade in the US comedy industry. With tens of thousands of shows under his belt and still chasing his dream, Jeff lays out his career as a stand-up, a comedy writer. Uh, We'll talk about when he wrote comedy greetings cards, uh, a Carnival Cruise comedy show director before, through the cruises, he found his way back to stand-up again, all the while displaying limitless hope, humility and gratitude. Um, There is some extra content on here. If you are considering gigging on ships or are interested in if you already do and want to improve, there is some fascinating stuff uh, from the perspective, from Jeff's unique perspective of both an act and a booker with a ton of cruise uh, shows and gigs uh, under his belt. So don't miss that. If you're an insider or you'd like to be, you can join at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Um, And uh, it really is like this is an interview which is kind of a man's life story and uh i think it is one which i hope you will agree with me displays all those qualities that uh, that i have just listed it is an amazing view of comedy from the ground up this is jeff shaw welcome jeff shaw to the comedians comedian podcast great to have you here hi Stu. thanks for having me you are um we've corresponded for a little while we've corresponded you're a listener i know to the show you're an excellent comic i've seen your dry bar specials 
Um, and you are also, uh, well, there are many strings to your bow, but where we find you right now is, I think, at the end of some pretty industrial scale travel. Like you're a, you're a kind of, are you a road dog? Are you an air yeah. dog? I mean, you I'm seem, a, we, when we were trying to put this together, it was like, how on earth are we going to find a space in between all your airports? Well, yesterday at 6 a.m., I woke up uh, in my cabin on a Carnival cruise ship, and uh, I was in Tampa around 10 in the morning. I put my stuff and luggage, went to the Tampa Aquarium, uh, went to the airport, had a couple of cups of coffee, did a bunch of work, and then I, I arrived in Cleveland at uh, midnight, got home at 1.30, and set the alarm for 7 a.m. for this interview. And oh I'll, be, I'll be leaving again for another ship on Sunday. Oh, my God. Okay. So where does this let's set you up for for our listeners? I think one of the there's there's a number of reasons I was very excited to talk to you. And one of them is that as well as being a very hardworking comic and a very kind of committed to kind of the the experience of being a comic like you came you came later than most to comedy. Is that fair? When? Uh, No, actually, um, I returned to comedy kind of late. Okay. But I started when I was 19. My first open mic night was in August of 1986. Okay. And I, I started off at the old Cleveland Comedy Club with Drew Carey and Steve Harvey. Oh, my God. Yes. Steve and, Harvey. Uh, I know who Steve Harvey is through memes, but I can't, I, I can't say I know his comedy. Drew Carey, on the other hand, huge fan of Drew Carey. I remember watching oh, yeah. him on the Montreal shows, the showcases they put on the TV here. Yes, Drew is a longtime host of uh, Pr- The Price is Right, which is a leading game show in America. And Steve yeah. Harvey has a high-rated morning show. And he had the Steve Harvey show. He hosts The Family Feud and a bunch of yeah. other primetime shows. He's a juggernaut. Yeah, for sure. So you, so, so you started off in the 80s when you were 19. 19. I was in the Army Reserves for six years. And uh, I was in the Army Reserves and I was uh, a comic. So I would often um, book my gigs around my weekend drills. Okay. So I started back in the '80s when they were looking for people to throw on stage. You know how now they have, <laughs> yeah. You know how now they have barkers standing outside comedy clubs looking for customers. Yeah. In the '80s, they had barkers outside the comedy clubs looking for comedians. <laughs> you know uh, what time does a show start? That depends. How much time can you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So I worked the road in North America from 1987 to 2004. And I was able to parlay a career as a freelance comedy writer, a humor columnist. I wrote features on uh, stand-up comedians, and I I wrote uh, album reviews and stuff like that. For I was I had the comedy beat at a local newspaper in Cleveland called the Scene Magazine. And in 2004, I was able to parlay that experience into a staff position with American Greetings which is headquartered in Cleveland, Ohio. And you know it as uh, Carlton Cards in the UK. Okay, okay. Okay, yeah, got it. So I was a greeting card writer after performing three, 4,000 shows over 17 years. I was working 40 to 50 weeks a year for 17 years, putting like 300,000 miles on three different vehicles. Okay. And I realized that I couldn't handle it anymore because the uh, the industry kept changing many times and I adapted every time, but I was at my wit's end and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And my mother's... Uh, my cousin worked at American Greetings, and her husband worked as a vice president of marketing. And my mom said to him, uh, Jeffrey's getting really burnt out on the road, and it's getting harder to find gigs. Could you perhaps find him a job 
driving the van around delivering the, the greeting cards. Okay. Because he likes to drive, and maybe this will be a break from comedy, and he can regroup. <laughs> and so he goes, yeah, I guess I can find him a job on the loading docks or driving, but wh what does he do now? She goes, he's a stand-up comedian. She goes, well, why don't I find him a writing job? Great. And so three months later, I found myself with a salary, health insurance benefits, writing greeting cards for American Greetings, saying goodbye to the road. 17 years, um, over 40 states. Uh, and uh, and then I had my, you know, my writing experience. And then after a couple of years, I wound up getting laid off. And I didn't know what, what I was going to do. I was uh, newly 40. I uh, had half a furnished apartment. Okay. I, I paid off all my bills with the money I was making, but I had nothing in savings. And I found myself unemployed. And after being turned down by Andrews and McNeil Publishing and Hallmark, they didn't have um, they didn't have any slots. I didn't know what I was going to do. So right before I retired from stand up comedy, a friend of mine helped me um, get a job with uh, Carnival Cruise Lines. And I spent the last two years of my comedy career working at sea. Okay. And I thought, wow. I made a list of all the things I can do with my transferable skills as a comedian, as a self-employed comic, all the skills that I had, how could I transfer them? And I wrote down to the top of the list, cruise director. So I contact, I, I found myself at 42, um, working in a mailroom at a law firm. And then at night I was uh, putting on my little monkey suit and I was ushering at the comedy club that I started out at 20 years earlier. So oh I was watching, God. I was watching all the comedians that opened for me headline. And, uh, for a year I would go at six in the morning, put on my little blue uniform, my name tag, work at hospitals, work at, um, schools, work at uh, law firms. I was pushing around a mail cart okay. and I'd be looking at the photos of the lawyer's desk with their houses and their families and thinking, I'm 42 years old and I'm pushing a mail cart. I'm never going to see Las Vegas again. I'm never going to see New York City. I'm never going to be on a TV show. I I'm never going to have a car that doesn't have a muffler hanging out. What am I going to do with my life? And at night, I was, uh, I was uh, schlepping over to the comedy club, changing in the office, putting on my little tuxedo outfit, and then uh, ushering the comedy shows. And uh, I learned how to... Um, I learned how to um, supervise a wait staff, how to seat the room, how to set up the room. I learned a little about, about lights and sound. Sometimes I would run the shows. And then um, I didn't know what I was going to do. And on uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day, 2007, the city of Cleveland was snowed in and we couldn't go to work. But the comedy club decided that they still needed to have their big Valentine's Day show. So I didn't have to go to work in the daytime. I went straight to the comedy club at night. And that's when all the comedians were snowed in. <laughs> None of the comedians made it to the show. So uh, I was a doorman. And um, the box office kid was a comedian. And one of the waiters was a comedian. And so in desperation, the comedy club manager put all three of us as the show. Oh I, I I headlined with like 25 minutes and then the box office guy did 10 and the waiter did like 20. And so by the time I hit the stage, I said, the name of the club is Hilarities. It's one of the top clubs in the country. And by the time I hit the stage, I said, uh, welcome to career night here at Hilarities Comedy <laughs> Club. Uh, if, if, if you guys have any energy in you, we're going to have the fry cook come out and do a close <laughs> with the guitar. Uh, 
And so uh, I did well enough that they started using me as an MC again. So some shows I would usher and I would MC. And so that day, because we were snowed in, I didn't have to go to work. I contacted Carnival Cruise Lines. And after a Mm two-hour conversation, they told me that if I could pass the physical, they would put me on a ship. I had a cousin loan me me $500 uh, so I can get the physical. Mm-hmm. the maritime physical and everybody in my family and my circle of friends said you have to take this gig you weren't meant to be sitting at home in cleveland you need to travel and my dad said to me if you take this gig i guarantee you i don't know how it's going to happen but you will find a way to be a stand-up comedian again M- maybe even on the ship maybe one night they'll use you as a comedian and things will start over so take a chance go do it so by and, and july the gig, and just to be specific the job there that you were doing at carnival was what well, it, 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 it was called um, it was called um, activities host at the gotcha. time it was called social host now they call it fun staff but it's like a red coat like uh, in the resorts in England I understood yes 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 yeah and that's where they got it from that's actually I wore a red coat back in those days okay, okay. so like, I call it an animator would you would call it in the UK okay yeah so um, uh, did you say UK or okay <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah I, I said okay I've not heard okay. that term animator before but I do know what a red coat is so I've got a sense yeah. of that's the kind of okay so the, the idea was that's a toehold maybe if you do that you might get a gig and it's all part of the route to get back into college right so it's the training it's the track for cruise director mm-hmm. it's uh, entertainment host assistant cruise director cruise director so i ended up quitting both my jobs putting everything in storage and in 2007 at 42 years of age going to carnival to share like i never moved to new york or la as a comedian because i couldn't fathom the idea of having to share a house or apartment with two other people so now here i was here i was middle aged and sharing bunk beds with another grown man yeah, okay. You know, okay. so to make a long story short, I hacked it for two years from 2007 to 2009, and I took a little sabbatical, not really sabbatical because it, it was unpaid, but I had, I took a four-month vacation, and I rented a room in San Diego to find myself, and I spent those two months playing guitar, writing stand-up comedy, mm-hmm. and thinking about a return to stand-up, because I was hosting... Um, uh, just like my dad said, as soon as I hit Carnival, I was lucky enough to have an Australian cruise director, uh, kind of like a, 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 like a guy. He looked like a, an Australian guy, Fieri, very buff, uh, very mm-hmm. funny. And he, I had I lucked out and found a cruise director who was so uh, so um, secure. Um, in both his station, his talent, and his masculinity, that he was the kind of guy that if you shined, he shined. So he was always trying to find a way to have his his team um, utilize their talent. So right away, he had me hosting all of the comedy shows. And after a while, we were running the shows kind of like a comedy club. We would have two shows. We'd clear it out. We'd clean the room, and then we'd bring the line in, and I would host. And after uh, a few months... The word got out and comedians were requesting my shit because they'd have a, a, a professional comedian warming them up and making them look good, yeah, yeah, setting yeah, them up okay. for success. So two years later, I was on that vacation uh, and I was walking around on the ocean trying to figure out what I was going to do. And a friend of mine called me up and said that he had a one-man show in Las Vegas. He was doing Defending the Caveman at, uh, in the daytime. And at night, he had his own show at the Fitzgerald uh, Casino. So uh, they got a prof- one of the members of the company to do his show at night, uh-huh. and uh, oh no, in the daytime, and then he asked me to do his show. So I showed up in Las Vegas in 2009 with like a 100-page script 
of all my material that I've been doing on the ship, stuff that I haven't done in years, and I cobbled together an hour show. Okay. And and uh, and uh, and this and he believed in me, and he said, "You can do this, and this will be your road back to comedy." And I found myself in front of a paying audience in Las Vegas with my notes laid out on a table, and I said, "Hey, folks." I retired from comedy. I went back to become a cruise director. I'm helping my friend out here. And so I'm going to be reading some of my material, but I'm not going to let it affect my performance. Now, joke number one. <laughs> how is everybody doing tonight? And then I had him. So um, I, I was contemplating whether moving to L.A. Uh, then I went to L.A. and Drew Carey took me, um, uh, got me tickets to see um, The Price is Right. And then also to a, a, a episode of the Craig Ferguson show, the Late Late Show of oh, Craig yeah. Ferguson. Yeah. And I got to go backstage and hang out in the game room. And my appetite was whetted. I was like, do I go back on the ship like I'm supposed to in a week? Yeah. Or do I go to uh, – I, I even like got an application to become a page at CBS while I was at The Price is Right. I'm constantly working the angles. <laughs> so, 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 so I found myself in the office at CBS getting an application for being a page. So yeah. I, I went uh, – so my cruise director, I promised him that I was going to return. And he said, we really want you to return. I go, I can't handle life on a ship anymore. But I decided that I needed to be a man of my word, f- fulfill my obligation – and I showed up on the ship in 2009, and a week after I was there, a comedian forgot his passport in the glove box of his automobile at the Amtrak station in L.A., and I got a phone call while I was hosting the cornhole or beanbag competition on Lido Day. On the first day of the ship, I was walking around, giving away prizes, <laughs> doing trivia, and my cruise director called me and said, take the rest of the night off, show up backstage in the theater at 10 p.m. in your suit and tie. You're our headline comedian for tonight. Amazing. Yes, and <laughs> and I still had about 20 or 25 minutes because although I was no longer like a stand-up, I had yeah. been developing material as a host for two sure. years, comparing all the shows. Yeah, yeah. So I went on stage in front of 1,200 people headlining what they call the Welcome Aboard show. I destroyed. I was a, so, I was a, I was a mini-celebrity. I was a mini-celebrity for the, the rest of the uh, cruise, and a week later I get called into his office – Unbeknownst to me, the cruise director, he um, wrote a formal performance evaluation on me as if I were a comedian. So my show, my show was entered into the system. And the gentleman who booked all the comedic talent, the variety acts, the comedians, the jugglers, the magicians for Carnival Cruise Lines was developing for um, every year Every year or two, Carnival will, will have a new ship, and they make a big production out of it. it okay. It's always got to have new new entertainment offerings, um, new features, and they, and they really go hard in the press, and they try to make each new ship more special and, more, uh, and, and unique. So w- they were going to develop their first ever standalone comedy club, the Carnival Comedy Club. And they were thinking, who are we going to get to run the program? And then he gets this review. Our fun staff was yeah. throwing bean, was judging the beanbag contest at three o'clock in the afternoon. He goes up and he closes the show. He's lived on ships for two years. He can do anything a cruise director can do. He used to be one of our comedians. He's our guy. So uh, I found myself doing a test program for the Carnival Comedy Club on the Carnival Glory. It lasted six weeks. 
we we developed everything on how to have a, a comedy club on 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 a ship. Like we had a box office, we had tickets, we had multiple shows. Um, I did. I was in charge of doing all the posters and the promotion, and I even wrote the bios for all the comedians and entered all their. Um, all their uh, information in the system and created the posters and the videos and all that kind of stuff. I even recorded promotional videos to promote the club that people yeah, would yeah. see on their TV. Okay, okay. And then I found myself in Europe, uh, in Rome for a few days, and I boarded the ship, and the rest is history. We, we crossed the Atlantic, and then in November of 2009, Carnival launched the Carnival Comedy Club. And then we rebranded it as the Punchliner by George Lopez. And for eight years... I ran the comedy club on the Carnival Dream doing 20 shows a week for 10 to 14 months at a time for eight years. Oh, so, my God. <laughs> I, so I, I did about 8,000 sets. Okay. And 8,000 then. 8,000 um, sets. 8,000 sets, yeah. It comes to about a dollar per set. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So oh I live. Okay. I lived at sea. I lived on the ship. In the morning, I would get up, and I would. I, it was. Um, I negotiated myself a standalone job, so I didn't have to do all those other activities. In the morning, I would get up, get my coffee, go to my office, and I would write comedy for two to four hours. And then in the afternoon, I would do admin for the program, mm -hmm. and uh, everything from um, vetting videos for new comedians and so forth, and the, and doing the posters, doing the schedules. And then at night, 6 o'clock, I'd be there. We'd have five shows a night, two PG shows, and then mm -hmm. three adult shows. And I would set up the club. I would make sure that the club was clean, that all the chairs were set up. I would host and seat the audience. And then I did that for eight years. And then um, they eliminated my job, and they made that position part of the, 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 the crew staff. So okay. you would host all the other activities, and then you would take turns doing the comedy club. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, okay. So, so they kind of like yeah. you, you worked out how to do it, and they went, "Oh, we know how to do it now." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so now we need you to do other stuff. Why? Why are we paying you just to be a comedian? Sure. So, okay. so, so what happened was is they gave me a choice of being a cruise director. Oh, I actually uh, in 2012 I um, interviewed for the job as a director in the office of the whole program, and I didn't get it because I didn't have any corporate management experience. Sure. And then um, I became the right-hand man to the gentleman who got the job. And we did a lot of great things with the program, uh, the Punchliner Comedy Club program. Mm -hmm. And then I interviewed for the job again, and they said, you know what? You're too much of a union organizer for the comedians. We need someone who's going to do what we're going to say. And that, <laughs> and that, <laughs> At least they're up front. <laughs> yeah, because my, my whole concept was is if you create an environment that sets the comedians up for success, like to me – I mean, they're a corporation. They're a great corporation, and they love comedy. And they just—it's it's, so many comedians' careers have been revitalized by this program. It's—it's—it's it's, it's incredible. But you know, being a typical corporation, they're more concerned about you know, you know the um, the glitz of it. You know, the the, the uh, like the, the 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 backdrops and the videos and who's the spokesperson and mm -hmm. and how this plays in the trade magazines and mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. Where I was concerned with like the blender noise and yeah. people having yeah, their yeah, phones yeah. out. And so I was, I was constantly like, all you need to do is like make sure nobody's on their phones. You have to do the the blender drinks in the back pantry, mm -hmm. and there was just like, that kind of um, attention to detail and always like always fighting for the comedian's rights. That's not that wasn't their vision. So they said, hey, you want to be a comedian again? In 2017, I went back to being a full time comedian, and the best thing that ever happened to me was, um, I uh, I got one last contract. 
on the Carnival Splendor, and they told me that this time I would have to do all the other activities as a, another activities host would do. Okay. But because I was senior, they took it easy. I mean, I just did, you know, a lot, a lot of the fun activities and things like yeah. that. So what would happen was, is I would host the comedy shows. As usual, I was allowed to do my 10 minutes. And by the end of my run, I had 26 different 5 to 10 minute sets. Very smart. Oh, my God. John. Yeah. So okay. every so each comedian was, was, each comedian in the program was contracted to do a, uh, one 30-minute PG show, which we repeated for a different seating. Yeah. Two R-rated shows, uh, 30 minutes in length, with one of those shows uh, being repeated for a repeat seating so that you can control overcrowding so that not yeah. too many people are trying to get in at once. So on my ship, that worked perfectly. And the other, uh, on the other ships, they didn't understand that concept, so um, they would never advertise as a repeat. So comedians started developing five different shows. Yeah. So, so anyway, so what happened was is... They told me that if I, you know, uh, towed the line and, and, and took it on the chin and did all the other stuff, which they thought, you know, it may be beneath you, but just help us out. If you help us out and fill the slot as a regular host, we'll let you do your comedy at night. And mm -hmm. then on the off night between the two sets of comedians, one set of comedians would come on. They would each do their five shows. So mm -hmm. we'd have ten shows. And then they would get off, say, in Cosmo, Mexico, and then the, uh, the other two comedians would get on, and then they would do their 10 shows, and that night off, they gave me my shows. So okay. I got to do my okay. three, my three uh, contractual shows, and then um, I would train one of the other hosts to run the comedy club. Okay. And in August of 2017, I signed off my ship with my 10-year pin and a, and a modest retirement check for a 10-year retirement, and then three days later, I was on uh, another ship as a comedian. Okay. And, and because I was new, I didn't start off at the top of the roster. I wasn't getting yes. all the work oh I wanted. Oh, my God, yes, right back. It's day one all over again, right? Right, day one all over again. And um, I didn't get a lot of good reviews in the beginning because the competition was fierce, right? Just heavy hitters, just killers that you've never heard of, yeah, yeah. you know, in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they never made it. But, you know, and the road is drying up. So now you're getting these amazing comics that are now out at sea. Mm. And so they put me on stage with some of the best, mm. you know. And uh, so what happened was after my trial run, they just gave me a couple a couple of ships a, um, a month. And I thought, oh, my career is over again. After all this, after 10 years, my career is over again. And I started knocking on doors just like I was uh, a beginning comic again. I got into comedy clubs all across the country, mm -hmm. um, corporate work, casinos, and um, but not starting at the top with Carnival really pushed me to, um, to find revenue streams in other areas. Yes. Okay. So this is Jeff. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. You can watch Jeff's special Manly Girly Man on his website uh, and his second special, The High Voice of Reason, is also available now too. Um, his website is jeffthefundude.com and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at jeffthefundude. Um, we are going to get we're going to get straight back into this one. It's a it's a long episode. We recorded for hours. Um, I'm bringing you the highlights of Jeff's life story, and uh, we also, as I said, there's some really interesting stuff about. Um, he, he tells us a very embarrassing story of his first open mic night and how delusion and ego are necessary for a new comic. How he was taken under Drew Carey's wing. 
Um, we're, we'll get into that on the extras as well as a genuinely fascinating analysis of anyone who's, who is working or considering doing stand-up comedy on cruise ships. Uh, as I said, from Jeff's perspective as an act on the cruises and a booker and curator of cruise ship shows. That's sort of an unmissable insight in that. And as for myself, um, I am currently launching the kind of uh, the various iterations of spoilers. It's not on tour yet. Uh, I'm still working out how I'm uh, going to tour it and uh, in what kind of guise. I think I will come to a few cities. I hope there'll be some shows I can invite you to in London with dates sorted before long. Um, what I will say is that if you are someone who appears at climate conferences and events like that, net zero and sustainability stuff, maybe you can catch me there. Um, and uh, I am working on spreading my wings rather more within that world. So uh, get in touch if you're a person who has interests in those directions. That's all for now from me. Let's get back to this episode with Jeff and I'll chat to you afterwards. Here's more from Jeff Shaw. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y dot and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's an extraordinary story of a career, like kind of multiple careers, as you said, starting all over again, thinking my career is over again. That's an incredible. Uh-huh. I want to talk to you about like that's I've, I almost feel like that's the plot. I want to talk right. to you about this, like the subtext and the stuff going on underneath that, because my first question, I guess, would be way back when you originally when your mum makes that phone call and, and you know, get you get in with the kind of the, the greetings card company. That was your was that your decision at the time to go, I'm burnt out, I can't do the road anymore. What was your relation like how did you how did you cope with that? Because that's I suppose the first moment of letting go that I think someone right. that that people you know, I know I know lots of comics who people who I started with who've who've packed it in, who thought, Okay, I've and you you may know from this podcast it's a, a thing of mine. I I hate to talk about quitting or giving up comedy. I always talk about completing comedy. But uh, oh, one I of like those that. one of those things that um that occurs to me is that for most comics i would say there are a few things that 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 we all have in common one of them i think is the the idea that comedy is a part of us it's a part of our identity and so the idea of ever stopping or having to stop or letting go of it or completing it is this i imagine this i mean it is with the, the times i sometimes long dark nights of the soul i think do i want to do this forever is there more you know um 
that's a huge, it's like letting go of a huge part of your identity. So talk to me about that with that first moment of, of how it stopped before you went to get like a regular job and thinking, oh God, maybe I'll drive a van, you know? Well, I, I, I agree with you 100%. And that's the beauty of this plot twist. Because it wasn't I was I was tired of the road. I wasn't tired of being a comedian. I wasn't tired of living out a suitcase. I was tired of filling my calendar by calling people over and over again and have them saying no. And the paradigm was shifting. Um, uh, it, it, was, uh, it, it was at the beginning of having to put butts in seats yeah. to be a headliner. Yeah, and, and yeah. so I, I, I God, it was old... the beginning. I think of that as like that's the American comedy idiom, but it never used to be like that. No, it wasn't. Uh, okay, because we've you got can... that coming for us. That's five years away from. Oh us. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think exactly. five to ten years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, I, I survived the first time, uh, the first paradigm shift in the industry in the mid '90s by learning how to write. In 1994, I had another hard time where my gigs started drying up. And uh, people ask me, they go, what was the difference now between being a stand-up and being a stand-up in the 80s and 90s? And I said, back then, when I first started, you could walk off stage and the club owner would say, well, Jeff, you know, we love you here, but you didn't do as well this time. It just didn't connect with the audiences. And I'm not sure what it was. I don't know what you're going through. So um, I can still use you, but I'm only going to be able to give you 13 weeks next year. Okay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and now, now you walk off stage and they go, where have you been all our lives? You're the best comedian we've ever had. In fact, we're going to change the name of our uh, club to Jeff Shaw's Joke Shack. We're going to we're going to race. We're going to paint over Eddie Murphy and Robin Williams' mural and put your face on the wall. Yeah. And then um and and every time anybody comes in, we're all going to chant Jeff is the best. Jeff is the best before every show. And yeah. then they pull out their book and go, "How does your 2026 look?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So um I so what I did, every time that I saw writing on the wall, I decided that I need to learn a different skill. So yeah. I thought that if I couldn't make it as a stand-up anymore, I would learn how to write. And I was enamored with a, um, a humor columnist out of Miami named Dave Barry. Okay. Let me, let me, let me, let me just pause there because I, I have follow-up questions before we get on to that next section. Um, okay. Sp specifically, to do, again, less to do with the kind of the plot and the decisions you made and more to do with the feelings. Okay, you all saying, right. Like, do you know what I mean? It's, it's like that, that first moment where you go... This isn't working. Like you know, right. you're busy. Like you're you're busy. You're making you're making money. You're making a living. But the like, what was the? You said the issue was it was having to ring up and be told no. So you were right. It was like, getting you, harder and harder to get it gigs. Was, harder it was getting and harder, harder and harder. At that time, were you crushing gigs and there was just simply too many acts, or were you feeling like I'm just not at the level that I need to be yet? I was I was crushing it, but. Um, there were so many. Uh, it was so. Uh, it was. It was so hard to get booked because so many comedians, so many clubs were sure. closing. A lot of the clubs that I worked had gone under. It had been. It had been the heyday. It had been boom right. time, and then the industry was. I mean, we did experience something similar here not so long ago. Clubs that right. used to have five shows on a weekend now have one show on a weekend. So and, it was yeah. abject fear of yeah. of not having a career. Yes, and so okay. I taught myself how to write, and ten years later, it it paid off. Um, so, uh, in 2004, 
history repeat itself. I was um, living out of my car from 2000, 2003, taking every single gig I could get playing some clubs twice, three times a year. I gave up my apartment because I couldn't afford the $300 in rent. So I've... Uh, and this I is, I mean, this, this gives the light to your routine about being able, like anybody could afford $300 in rent. That's a very funny routine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. So, so basically, I was, I, was, um, I was crushing it from 2000 to 2003. I was living out of my car and um, once a month, I would have a week off or something, and I would just get a hotel room or one of those extended stays wherever, whatever region I was working for the rest of the month. Okay. And after, like, after three years of that, I had worked so many clubs and had been to so many places that and, and, uh, the, it started to dry up, and I couldn't get booked anymore. And, so, uh, so, so talk to me about that. You, you, you're so hardworking. You're totally committed to going to these places, committed to the road going to these places. If you can't get booked anymore, is there a moment where you have to look at you have to look at it and say, if I was doing well enough, I would get booked again? I mean, did you see other people around you who oh, were I, I, doing as well as you? Or better than you, and and who were also struggling to get bookings. I just want to kind of visualize the, the yeah, landscape that, of it. But that's my that's my original mindset too. That's my default mindset. I'm one of those guys. You know how like there's so many comics. They go, I don't watch comedy because all the comedians today suck. Yeah, you know, sure. and they always have some. Neg- I'm one of those guys. Like, I, like I've listened. I've listened to almost every episode of your of your podcast. I haven't heard. I haven't seen one comic that I'm better than. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and I watch. I I have like sixty YouTube specials, like in my queue on my playlist that I have to get through. And and, and every day in my YouTube feed, there's a comedian I've never heard of, and I watch his hour, and I go, "What am I doing? Yeah. This, uh, where where do these people come from?" So I was such a student of comedy at two thousand. I was at the top of my game as proficiency. I was the best comedian I'd been at that time. Yeah. But I, but I still felt like whenever I saw another comedian, I'm like, I don't know if I can keep upping my game. I mean, mm-hmm. these these people are just amazing, and um, to go from being like considered, like back when I started, you were considered special if you could just do stand up comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, what, and what, here's the feeling I got. I got the feeling that I was no longer a superstar because I could do comedy. Uh, I was a super proficient guitar player who had a job playing the Holiday Inn Lounge while people are drinking. Sure. You know, like uh, stand-up comedy, like, we, we seem to think that, that we're the only people who can do it. And there was a time when just being a comedian was amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not about being a comedian. Anybody can be a comedian. It's what it, Now it's like what you can say. And mm-hmm. I think at that time, I didn't know. I'll tell you exactly what it was. Um, the comedians that were getting booked in the early 2000s were like uh, the new alternative comedians where having a point of view was first becoming very uh, important. In the mm-hmm. 90s, that started to be a prerequisite. You had to get to... to uh, to get any heat in the industry, you had to have a point of view. And, and I swear, my, just I, just to interrupt there, Jeff, the my my uh, assumption about why that is is that <laughs> on some level everything had been said. Do you know what I mean? Like all the exactly. jokes have been made, right? Exactly. So, so we've seen, we've heard a hundred different angles on airplane food, relationships, cats and dogs, and all the other you know interesting and specific topics that people were doing comedy about. But I guess that it sort of boiled down. It kind of reduced down to. Do we care? Do we give a shit about who this person is and what they're saying? Exactly. And in, and in 2003, I found myself going, oh, wait a minute. 
You mean I have to be a deep, interesting person with thoughts that matter and can change the world? Nobody told me that. <laughs> what if, if you told me that in 1987, maybe I would have worked on that. But, I, but, but, but I've been working on my jokes. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, that's one of the fascinating things about your perspective as someone who's been going through so many iterations of comedy for so long, over such a long time, not simply to have seen those changes, but also I'm really fascinated by kind of how humble you've been, how like you haven't, when it has changed, when you, you know, my career is over again, you know, that, that kind of feeling. Like I'm really fascinated by a, the drive required to keep trying and keep going, nope, this is it. I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to, I don't want to retrain as something completely different. I want to keep doing this, even in the face of multiple paradigm shifts and, and exhaustion and of the road, all those kind of things. Well, really... good. I'm glad you said that because here comes your answer you were looking for. Um, that stems from my love of what I do but also, too, I never viewed myself as somebody who can be a star. I viewed being a stand-up comic just like, you know, like driving a truck. It was a job. And so I, so my whole career, I've just been so glad. Like, I, I feel like I have no business being on stage. So I feel like I got away with it for 20 years. I'm so grateful and so happy. So, <laughs> so if they keep letting me do it, and if I have to work harder, I mean, my dad worked, you know, um, you know 100 hours a week in a factory, and one night... Uh, I was visiting and he went to bed at seven o'clock and I go, why are you going to bed? He goes, well, I got to get up at 4 a.m. tomorrow. I go, why? He goes, because the person who warms up the machines for the shift mm -hmm. is on vacation. So if I go in th a couple hours early, I warm up the machines before I start at six. Mm -hmm. I get an extra $150 a week. Okay. So, so, um, uh, so, uh, so my, my joke was if my dad can get up at four in the morning to make an extra $150 a week, I can drive to um, Louisville, Kentucky, to make 125. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, okay. So, so the turning point you're talking about, um, uh, like May of, of 2004, um, I still wanted to do stand-up. And I felt that my, uh, my ability to do what I love was coming to an end. And this is where my seeing the writing on the wall 10 years prior and writing hundreds and hundreds of humor columns and feature stories over the years um, allowed me to amass a portfolio. So as soon as I found out that I was able, that I had an opportunity to to switch gears and go from stand-up to professional comedy writing, yeah. I wasn't leaving my dream. I was going to the next stage okay. because it wasn't so much like I, if I had to leave stand-up because it was too difficult, I was going on to something in my mind even better because I always consider myself a better writer than a performer. Okay. Okay. So the, the, so the fact that, so all that, so I put the same type of effort and preparation that I did as a stand-up comic into um, my interview. I had a uh, I had a huge portfolio of all my writing. I had uh, sample greeting cards that I wrote, and also I was quoted in a lot of uh, American joke books. Okay, you know, okay. like a compendium of of sure. one liners. Yeah, you know, like 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 from the old days. Like one of my 
most enduring jokes that's been done by other comedians but uh, mm. that I did on TV in the 80s was when I was a little boy my mother wore a mood ring when she was in a good mood it turned blue and a bad mood left a big red mark on my forehead yeah gotcha okay yeah <laughs> I, I didn't, you know or my, 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 my uncle was my uncle was thrown out of a mime show for having a seizure they thought he was heckling you yeah. know <laughs> I've heard that joke that's yours <laughs> yeah yeah it's on yeah okay. yeah it's a, so, so you, were, you were kind of coining those types of jokes that were sort of stealable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like those kind of jokes that were kind of archetypal enough that people right. go, oh, I'll stick that on a, on a Greasy's card. Yeah. Right. But now it's just the opposite because I found a point of view. Now, like when people say, oh, I'm going to sue me too, I go, look, if you can get my stuff to work, all the more power to you. I yeah. can't. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but even even that, and I'm, we'll, we'll just, we'll loop back around in a sec. But um, even that, that idea of like, it sounds like you have... Uh, it sounds like you have accrued a point of view in order to be able to keep being a comedian, which is not exactly. the way that people come into it now. They, It seems to me a lot of people go, I have something to say that's burning inside of me. Comedy right. will let me say it. I guess I'll do that. But like to come at it from another angle of going... I just will not stop being a comedian regardless right. of any of the circumstances. So and, and, if, and the, if I need to have a point of view, I will refine a point of view. And, and that comes from embracing and becoming a fan of modern comedy. I'm always a, a fan of comedy first. So when all these new comedians, like new, like Patton Oswalt and M M uh, Maria Bamford uh, yeah. and uh, uh, the vanguard of the alternative comedy movement, you know, Dana yeah. Gould, sure. all, the, all, all these, Paul F. Tompkins, all these amazing comedians, uh, and David Cross uh, and Louis C.K., um, I, like, I was never, because I always didn't think I was any good, and I always felt lucky to be invited to the party, I, I, I always just was so happy. Like, I was one of those guys who always loved watching the other comedians. I never felt threatened because I go, I know he's better than me, so who cares? If, if they like me and they think I'm funny, then, hey, I'm happy, yeah. you know? Yeah. So uh, I embraced new comedy and I studied it. And, um, and, and, and if I worked with people 10 years, 15 years younger than me and they were better than me, I'm like, well, there's five-year-olds that can play that violin and, and that's just how life is, you know? Do, but, you, but, do, do you think... This because I I, I I recognize in myself some of that kind of like uh, hey, I'm just I'm just thrilled to be here. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like right. I, I certainly feel that sometimes. I worry for myself that sometimes it is a. It, sometimes I like I don't dream big enough. I think I think a way that I would put it in conversation to someone backstage these days are like, oh, you know, you've really got to kick down doors if you want to be a uh -huh. star. I mean, Tom Stade said on this podcast many years ago, if you want to be a star, fucking act like one. And I thought, well, I don't know if I want to be a star. I don't seem to. <laughs> I don't seem to act like one. I'm not a kick down door type person. I know people who kick down doors, and some of them mm. do it too hard, and the industry rejects them, and they and they never realize, oh. Maybe I believed in myself too much. And others of them go, no, no, I, I deserve here. They have a kind of, and it, I suppose what I'm saying is they have an entitlement that sometimes is earned. And sometimes you might look at the outside and say, well, maybe that's not earned. But the entitlement got you there because you believed in yourself enough to keep going and keep going. Do you, do you think, do you think for yeah. you, I suppose my question is, do you think for you that the kind of the happy-go-lucky approach has been a hindrance to really getting your teeth in and becoming a comedy megastar like has the fact that you would that you would that you were happy just to be there meant that you just kept being there um no i don't think so because um part and parcel with that is is all that all that uh pavement pounding and door knocking um i work tirelessly i mean i i, I mean I, I constantly i'm constantly knocking on doors always you know doing everything i can i've had to work 
extra hard just to keep working. So I think um, uh, that um, my my positive attitude comes from I'm glad to be here and I'm happy, happy Mm -hmm. go lucky. But my work ethic has has gotten even more intense. Like um, just um, um, working hard and doing everything that I think I could do to become a star has kept me working, but it hasn't made me a star. So um, so instead of being bitter though, um, I figured that if I can just stay in love with comedy and keep working and keep getting better and keep learning, that someday that'll happen. Like for example, I've 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 been a fan of your show for seven years ever since I saw you do a live com com uh, with, uh, with with Patton. Uh, Pat Oswald, Oswald and, and JFL. Yeah, yeah, yeah because sure. yeah, Carnival would send me every year to JFL to scout talents for the program, scout sure. talent for the program, and not once have I, I ever asked you about being on the show. Yeah, right. Not, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Not once. And then finally, just by being myself and talking comedy with you, you said, "Hey, and see if if I had if I had asked you to be on the show, you probably would have been like, oh, God,' and then never returned any of my emails." But because <laughs> I just love your show and love what you do, and 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 learn from what, listening to all your great comedians, I'm at the point where maybe I have something to offer, and I feel the same way about my career. Yes, that, I see. Y- Yes. You know, that um, that there's always something that, to me, it, 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 that's sort of why I don't have a podcast and all this kind of stuff. It's like, I, until I can become the best comedian I can be, I don't think all that other stuff's going to help me. You know, I, I feel so many, you know, comics that, like, at an intermediate level, they can't get booked. Yeah. So they get a podcast, or they do this, or they do that. Yeah. And I go, well, now you're just mediocre at that. Well, yeah, 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 I mean that. I, we've all seen that happen to some people. Mm-hmm. Conversely, I suppose that I suppose. Well, not count, you, of course. The, count, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the, the counterpoint to that, I suppose, is that is that not yet another paradigm shift that Jeff Shaw is going to have to accept and see the writing on the wall that people are doing podcasts, um, not simply, you know, to uh, to like have another thing to do, but because now it's a means of. Uh, engaging with your audience on a much deeper and individual and personal yeah. level. You know, if someone's sat in the bath or walking their dog and they're listening to your voice and hearing your opinions, uh. then they buy a ticket and they connect with you, they get on your email list, and they, you know, rather than being... You know, that that's one of the routes, isn't it, to accruing one's own audience. So I'm, uh-huh. I'm, so, I'm sort of surprised in some ways that you don't have a podcast. And by have a podcast, in inverted commas, I suppose uh-huh. I, I mean... Whatever that thing is, you know, like an engine, an online engine that connects and communicates with people and and accrues a bigger and bigger fan base. Because that, to me, is something you probably had the idea to do 15 years ago. Well, the problem is I can't find a sound engineer experienced enough to EQ my voice for a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but yeah, but you know what? I, I, I am working really hard now at learning social media. And, you know, getting better at it. I'm getting my ducks in a row, talking to a lot of young people uh, and, 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 and learning how to uh, do that stuff. And I'm talking to a lot of people doing podcasts. So the realization that I made recently is that I am constantly, I'm never going to be one of those people who thinks I'm good enough. So mm. I have to just realize that I'm, uh, I'm good enough. And it's, my career is always going to be a learning experience. It's going to be a journey that's never completed. So maybe now take it easier on myself and put some of my energy, instead of spinning my wheels, into yeah. other things. Well, you, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Because this is, this is the thing. I, there, there is a... There is a, uh, there are two, in fact, two different comics who I know well in the UK, who I think to myself... Um, I, my hat is off to them. I really am so respectful to them because I have seen them make it work 
through hard work and determination rather than through breaks. Do you know what I mean? Like people mm-hmm. who didn't get picked for the team, who didn't necessarily get the big agent. I'm th- I mean, there are lots more than two. I'm thinking of two in particular. Um, but people who have said, who have sort of set their, you know, set their shoulder against it and gone, no, no, I'm not. Uh, the, the, the apparent lack of kind of early stage luck and breaks and, and help and encouragement and all those things. You know, we know when someone gets, if someone gets in bed, as, so to speak, with a, with a big agent early, they, they kind of gather that kind of first contact momentum whereby they are more in contact with people who are experienced and can shape them and mould them and advise them or what have you. And someone who doesn't have those relationships, 10, 15, 20 years in, they could be forgiven. For you You kind of go, geez, you've not had the luck. You know, maybe it's not for you. And yet these people I'm thinking of, and I think maybe you're one of those as well, has gone, no, no, I've got my teeth into this. I'm never giving up. If it's not working right now, I'm going to work harder. And if it doesn't work right then, I'm going to work harder again. And I'm, I'm enormously respectful of that. And, and I think part of that, it's not just dedication. And I don't, I don't mean to minimise at all any of, your, any of your achievements, as you say, just thousands and thousands of shows. But I, I am so fascinated and impressed by this ability to take a deep breath, and say to oneself, my career is over again. It's day one. Let's go. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Where, where does that... So obviously you talked about your dad and that being so impressed with his kind of work ethic. Um, a, I want to know where that comes from. But also, I think my, my original sort of interjection was about how... About the... Like, there's something I think of as like the downside of reps. You want to go and rep it out. Do thousands of shows. Do hundreds of shows. Then do thousands. Then do tens of thousands of shows. It, is there a moment where you think, I'm, like as you said, I'm spinning my wheels. Is there a moment when you go hitting the same clubs over and over and over again? Is that progress or is it just repeats? Exactly. And I, and I think um, part of that comes from what I realized was because I didn't have any heat. I never was one of those people who took off and like I had people like... I didn't have like I never experienced so-called heat. Okay, yeah. So so if if I had if, if I had to make all my success myself, and after like twenty years, you seem to think, oh well, I'm not, I'm real, maybe I'm not all that good. You know what I mean? And so so sometimes, you, I think, oh, I keep have to developing. When now I just the the the, the goods are developed. Now I got to take them to market. But I'm yeah. still in the workshop tinkering. Yes, yes, you know, because what happens is when you don't have anybody supporting you, when you don't have get people see you at a comedy special and then sign you to a development deal or try to get you on a sitcom, whatever, you seem to think that you're still on the outside looking in. So um, what happens is when you get to a point where you're actually a journeyman comedian and you have something to offer the industry, what I'll do is if I'm playing a club for an audience that's not my speed or if I'm doing a show where um, I'm not set up for success and I don't do as well. Instead of thinking, because I didn't have that support group to begin with and I didn't have all those people blowing smoke up my butt from the beginning, so I'm at the point now where if, I, if I'm having a hard time of it, I'll think, oh, it's, I'm not good enough yet. It's not because I'm not in the right position. I'm, I'm not thinking, oh, if I go play a theater in New York City, I'll kill. Sure. And I have to have that mindset that now I have to be, uh, it's like the law of diminishing returns. I'm getting to the point now where the, the comedy that I'm developing and the things that I'm saying don't work as well when I'm playing audiences that are less comedy savvy. So maybe I have to position myself to to play more audiences where my stuff will be appreciated more or it's going to stunt my growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, uh, part of that work ethic or part of that, like that ability to say, I'm going to, it's day one, 
let's do this, is because when I went to work for uh, American Greetings, it was still comedy. Now I was going to be a writer. And yeah. I couldn't write for, I tried writing for, you know, spec sitcom scripts and movies, and I, was, I never got the hang of it. Tried writing a novel, never got the hang of it. I wrote humor essays, but it was hard to get syndicated and make a living at it. So uh, the, the, going someplace where they thought I was an amazing writer, and finally all my talent uh, and all my experience was, was being recognized. So that really helped. I think when I went to work for American Greetings, I got the recognition that I never got in stand-up. And, and do you, what does, what happens to your kind of, the way in which you value yourself when you step into a context in which you are you're kind of more special in that context in the green room of a comedy club if you imagine the you know the greyhound bus taking all the comics next to louisville kentucky we're all going that you know whatever it is the I, I realize all comics don't go on the same bus i'm just drawing an analogy here like the there's the circuit and we're all just endlessly going around the circuit and you are kind of valued for your... There's like a monetary value. It, it changes from club to club, from town uh -huh. to town. But there's a monetary value placed on you. And you, you, you have earned the right to do this long and you'll be paid this much and what have you. So you value... We, we, call, we all value ourselves in a particular way based in part on that and based... I mean, I think probably the larger part... The more healthy it is, the more largely you value yourself just for yourself. When you then go and work in a greetings card company where you're, the, I guess, the, the only professional comic on the you know in the room and suddenly you're valued differently is there is there what's my question is there a fear that you think oh of course I'm valued here because their standards are lower or do you go no contextually this is a bunch of human beings in a room they prize what I can do and actually, you know, they have a different understanding of it, and that's positive. Oh, I suppose, I like, what are the upsides and, and downsides to that? Um, I, I would say more of the latter mindset, but I would even um, modify that a little bit. Um, um, I was so grateful that they had this confidence in me, uh, that yeah. when I went in there, I was super motivated to do my best. I, I, yeah. I put a lot, I, I was like, I would stay two, three hours after work with the light on and coffee, um, uh, studying the library, the catalog of past cards, you know, going oh and, 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 and yeah, and, and 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 I would study every type of greeting card for every occasion, and all the different writers, and saying, oh, he, this is how they set up. In this case, is how they do. He, these are the tropes I need to stay away from. Here's what sells. Here's what works. And I would put all the homework in. So when I was there, I, um, I, I I I was afraid that I would let them down. That I wouldn't okay. that I wouldn't be as good as they thought I would be. But when I was there, I didn't think like um, when I went there, I was so impressed by the other writers and, and the artists. I mean, you're dealing with some world class writers and artists that are and have been doing that for 10, 20 years. So, again, true to my personality, I went in there going, oh, these people are so amazing. Mm -hmm. I had no idea mm -hmm. that I thought I'd go in and like everybody would be, like, oh, Jeff, can you write my cards for me today? You know, and, 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 and then I found myself <laughs> really having to work hard, yeah. you know, to learn, you know, to learn whatever skills that didn't transfer from being a stand. -up. Yes, I think I've often wondered that with people. I think uh, advertising uh, or like being in, being a creative in an advertising company, I've seen a few people hop from comedy to working in advertising, copywriting, I should say. Oh, that's what we call mm -hmm. it here, at least. Um, and I've often thought to myself, would there be a moment where you walk in thinking, don't worry, guys, 
the stand-up comedian is here. <laughs> you yeah, know, and, and then exactly you suddenly go, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, exactly. shit, these people are all experts. And actually, uh-huh. some part of my expertise is dealing with hecklers. Well, we can put that to bed. That doesn't happen here. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Oh, 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 you, you've never read your uh, you've never read your copy to a, a room full of under caffeinated greeting <laughs> card writers. That, uh, heckling definitely came into the equation. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so um, I I'm, I have enough self-confidence and enough of an ego that I went in there going, yeah, I'm the man. OK, yeah. if you want, I can give you guys some classes in comedy writing, you know, sure. that kind of stuff. But then I'm also <laughs> I'm also humble enough and also, you know, um, ear enough to learn and to improve that once I saw, oh, these guys, this is really a skill set that I don't have yet. They're, 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 they're definitely, um, gave me the job based on my aptitude, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but now I have to really prove myself and yeah. I found it exciting. The problem was, is I had absolutely no clue whatsoever how to behave in a corporate environment. Yes. Okay. So yeah, yeah, what yeah. happened was, is I negotiated, uh, a rather high salary for myself. Well, they considered it high. I mean, I, 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 any uh, when Carrot Top can sell more in T-shirts in one night than I make in a year, that's not yeah, a high salary. Sure. But but they but they don't look at it that way. No. So uh, I had uh, uh, a relatively high salary with no seniority. So when things started to go bad for the company a couple of years later, I got laid off and I didn't see it coming. Yes, and I, because you didn't know how to maneuver. You didn't understand the tropes of what a corporate life is like. Right. I thought yeah. that when your boss asked you what, what you thought of her idea, that you were supposed to tell her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know that. And, um, uh, there's two things that you, you, you need to know about me. Um, one, what happened with America's Got Talent three years ago. Okay. And, and then, uh, but then, um, you were just talking about that mindset, like of going, I've got this, you know, yeah. and uh, I'm, I'm the comedian. Hey, the comedian's here. But then also like how it is I can keep starting over again and and not be bitter and not be whatever. Yeah. When, when I when I first my first open mic night was in August of 1986. And I'm not making this up. This is a true story. I showed up to my first open mic night in my 1976 uh, Pontiac Bonneville. Um, with in the trunk of my car, you call it the boot, in the boot of my car, uh, a suitcase with a couple changes of clothes. Um, and um, because Stephen Wright had done two Tonight Shows in one week, and I figured I'm just as funny as him. Maybe I'll have to do shows, two shows. I better have two outfits. So I had a suitcase <laughs> uh, for my first open mic night, uh, and I had a signed autograph picture of me to Johnny Carson. And uh, I had um, I had five hundred dollars to buy an airplane ticket if they didn't pay for my ticket. I had I had uh, a friend of mine was going to come pick my car up from the parking lot if I took a limo to the airport. Oh, Jeff, I was, come on! I, 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 I was nine, I, I'm not kidding. Nineteen years old. I call. I had spent the summer writing jokes. Okay. Okay, and on, on index cards. When I was in the army, I saw Emo Phillips on David Letterman, and okay. and. And I saw Stephen Wright on The Tonight Show. And when I was a kid, I viewed myself as a nerd, as, 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 a, as a geek, as a weirdo. And there were two comedians who were able to um, parlay being a weirdo into being cool. They made it cool because they were so brilliant. Mm-hmm. So I thought those were the first two com- those, weren't, those weren't the first two comics that I loved. They were the first two comics that made me think I could do this. Mm-hmm. So I started writing jokes in the vein 
of of like Emo Phillips and Stephen Wright. And I, I called the Cleveland Comedy Club up. I, I was in acting class in high school. And uh, I did these little little scenes, little vignettes, little comedy pieces. And my teacher said, you're very funny. When you're old enough, you should try uh, open mic night at the Cleveland Comedy Club. So uh, I was 18, 19 years old. Uh, I just gotten off of active duty in the Army. And I called up the comedy club. They said, come Sunday night. Uh, you can get on the show and, and do your first set. So I drive to the Cleveland Comedy Club. It's where uh, Progressive Field is, where the Cleveland Guardians play. Okay. Um, before that was developed, it was a seedy part of town, and they had the Cleveland Comedy Club there. And uh, all the big names used to play there, Bill Maher, um, uh, Jay Leno. It, it, it was uh, it was like Robert Wall. It was like uh, it was the uh, Tom Dreesen. It was like the big it's one of the big road gigs of the of the 70s 80s and and early okay. 90s. So, uh I showed up and I saw a long line and I remember thinking to myself, how did they know I was going to be here tonight? Did the guy tell them? <laughs> so I, I I'm 19 years old, I parked my car, I had a, a change of clothes in the trunk. I, I thought I was I thought that I was going to do my set and the club owner would go into the back room, pick up the red hotline to the tonight show and go, "Johnny, we got this kid." <laughs> Send the limo. Now that and and the thing is, is if if now that's psychotic, okay. But sure. if the reason why new comedians are so insufferable is being a stand-up comic is so humiliating and so hard and so heartbreaking to learn when you're when you're learning that if you aren't egotistical, if you aren't delusional, you'll never make it past the beginning stages. Now I had I overcompensated. I had too much of that. Sure, sure, you know? sure. That's a good point. That's a very I like that's a very forgiving uh, attitude. I mean they uh -huh. are like open mic acts often absolutely insane levels of uh, sort of self-aggrandizement and, and confidence which hopefully then is uh, leveled out by uh, support and positive experiences as well as negative ones right. but yeah no absolutely but I tell without, people, it, when without it what will you do how could you possibly get there without that yeah you start off as a comedian um uh sucking but thinking you're great 30 years later you're great but you think you suck yeah <laughs> things that's most fascinating you've been in the game for so long you've seen i guess the styles kind of evolve and you also oh, see yeah. the kind of the vogues evolve there must be you know i mean a few <laughs> mentioned this on this podcast many many years ago we kept uh, myself and uh, danny mclaughlin a, a comic in the uk we um we made a list of uh, all of the new hack things which now that list itself would be you know like hack in the sense of um or like the, for me the most um the most prescient example is um, uh, when people would kind of mime getting the phone and go, so I spoke to my agent the other day, huh, I don't know what this is, and then kind of disavow the mime that they were doing. You know, that was like, yeah, it just yeah, became yeah, yeah. a real trope. Um, and we made this big list of them and I crowdsourced it from fans of the show and then I eventually, I quite soon pulled the plug because it started to get really vicious. Never crowdsource anything is my advice. Um, but I suppose you've seen, look, one of the ones that particularly sticks in my mind is that um, uh, Yoda... There was a lot of Yoda, and then Yoda became Gollum, and then there was a lot of Gollum. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like the, right, way, right, in which, right. the way in which that the, you know stand-up comedy as an art form sort of experiences itself, and it kind of chews through culture and reproduces culture, and then the same things come up and up because you know people make comics make leaps of artistic imagination which are so good they seem like the only way to think about a subject and then they inspire a new generation of comics who think that that's what comedy is so you have to do that 
So then they kind of, it echoes, do you know what I mean? Then those kind of like cultural churn. And I just, you must have seen so much of that over the years. You must have seen like ways of behaviour, ways of talking to an audience, you know, kind of like things like that. I don't even know what the question is, but yeah. Well, I was, was, yeah, I was there when the uniform was a black t-shirt or a white t-shirt and a, a, a sports coat with the sleeves rolled up. Yes! Yes, and that was the u- that was the uniform. So why right. why why did there have to be a uniform? What was the thinking of oh, someone? Oh, because who- well, when you were when you were a, a, a fledgling road comic in the eighties, the only comedians you saw were either on uh, HBO specials or on the Tonight Show, yeah, or Letterman. So um, and everyone always dressed up for Letterman. So at time you saw and for and for the Tonight Show, so you saw guys wearing suits. Yeah. But um, that's why what you just described is exactly why it took me so long to figure out what a point of view was, because um, when I was when I was first starting, it wasn't about what you said; it was about how you said it. Now, it's, now comedy is just a tool to make what you want to say as a human being, what you want to impart to other people, the lessons you want to learn, the, 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 the philosophy that you want to advance is now served by the humor, and the humor makes it palatable. But yep. when I first started in the 80s, with, with the styles of comedy that were more like what they call roadie or hacky, it was, yep. all about the, it was all about the craftsmanship of the joke. It was about the formulas. It was about the execution. Mm-hmm. And so I spent... So much time as a, as a young comedian, my first ten years studying joke structure and studying timing and delivery and crafting an act, you know, and um, uh, and fleshing out topics and just the mechanics of this word goes here and here's how you top this punchline and here's how you add a tag here and here's how you pace your set and here's how you group your material. That to me, that was so fascinating and also so difficult to master that it never occurred to me that I had to change somebody's life with my comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, so, but then by watching all the new type of comedy and studying it, like you said, seeing all these new trends, that fascinated me. And that made me want to up my game and learn that. But also I have the dual um, luxury of if I didn't learn, I would be left out. I wouldn't get bookings. So I yes. had to go with yes. the flow to, to, to adapt. And I was always so fascinated and so interested in stand-up that I never looked at these sea changes as threatening. I looked at them as exciting. And I think okay. I allowed myself okay. to be buoyed by the waves. Well, that's absolutely... I think that's really yeah. fundamental to your, to your personality and to the way you bring yourself to comedy is that you don't seem to have any of that resentment. Like, I don't want to go too deeply into those kind of... I don't want to think about those conversations because it's always there, but for the grace of God, go I. I mean, I, I feel resentful about certain things, but I also try to harbour a spirit of like, oh, OK, I, uh, I, I don't know whether it's simply that I often approach a topic as if I'm wrong. Like, oh, I thought it was like that. And, and now I'm wrong and I'm happy to be re-educated. Do you know what I mean? I'm happy to be educated about how it works. You said something earlier on that you were constantly working the angles, you know, like... I think that is an aspect of it as well. And one of the angles that we have to work is get used to change. Like, that's one of the best things you can teach a kid, I guess, is like, get used to change. Everything changes. That's the only constant truth. Well, so there's a you, book that was very popular in the U.S. called Who Moved My Cheese? Did that have any traction in the U.K.? Oh, I've heard of it. I don't know what it is. Is that what yeah. that's about? I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it. exactly what it's about. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So you, yeah. So, but you have that with no resentment. Or, or do you? Is there any No, kind no of resentment. resentment. But here's, do, do, here's you, do, you have, do you have other comics of your generation 
with whom you can say, look, privately between you and me, fucking hell, I can't hear another comic talk about ADHD or whatever the latest. <laughs> no, you know no. what I mean? Well, <laughs> Are well, there well, any well, moments? Well, well I, I have uh, I have ADD, so I don't pay attention to those comics. <laughs> um, but no, the only resentment I have is if you you have better hair than me. That's the only thing I written. No, but uh, no. Here's 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 one of the benefits of having a work ethic because I've worked so hard for everything that I have. I just I've always assumed that everybody else does too. So if somebody has a comedy club. They put their entire life on the line to have the mortgage for the property, to hire, to, to advertise. I, I under, seeing the inner workings of the comedy industry from all the angles, like uh, being you know a booker, a comedy club manager, being yeah. an usher, being a comedian. Um, I get to see things, and, and, and everybody's livelihood is on the line with their business if it's not done correctly. So I figure anybody who owns a comedy club knows what they're doing, and if I don't give them what they want, or if I don't adapt to what they need, then I'm not helping them. And the same thing, if somebody books a comedy show, uh, whether it's a TV show, and, and they don't think I'm right for them, I respect their opinion because I realize that that they know something I don't, and that uh, that they are doing the best they can. And so when I see these changes, I just assume that not everyone's an idiot and these changes happen for a reason. And I understand that, you know, that um, like nowadays, it's so weird to be at the top of my game and have people not even return my emails because they see I don't have 500,000 Instagram followers, you know, but, but the thing is, is I'm, 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 I'm frustrated that I can't figure out how to get there. That's why I'm talking to a lot of young people to help me, I'm, mm. you know, and, 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 and trying to, you know, I'm, and uh, you can see a big difference in the last month of what I'm posting online. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm getting the hang of it, but I'm not bitter because I realize that if I'm afraid of losing my comedy career, you know, which is me, basically me, my phone and my car and my passport, mm -hmm. what is it like to lose a business where you put hundreds of thousands of dollars with investors and you have a lease and, and, and mm -hmm. you have all these employees? So if these comedy clubs can't put people in the club, they're going to have to shutter. And they're going to have all this debt. So, like, their lives will be ruined. So the reason why the paradigm has shifted is because these people have found out that if they, instead of booking a comedian from Tuesday to Sunday, which was the way it was done at the Funny Bones and the Improvs in the 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. now my club, uh, Hilarity's Comedy Club, and even uh, my, my second home club, um, the Comedy Stop in, in Akron, Ohio, um, two different level clubs, but two great clubs, well run and very comedian friendly establishments yeah. Yeah. um mainstay they've been 30 years each of them uh now you don't go to work hilarities tuesday through sunday they'll have uh, a niche comic maybe a lesbian comic or a gay comic or um a college circuit comic or some kind of a comic with a built-in audience on a wednesday night mm -hmm. and then they'll have maybe a more popular more drawing one on, on a thursday night then they'll have the big name you know, Christopher Titus or whoever would come in on a Friday, Saturday. Mm -hmm. And then Sunday, they might have a local comedian headline or or maybe a, a one man show or some kind of, you know, certain thing. So every night, let's say you could draw 500 people in the market. You're going to draw those people on one night as opposed to spreading them out. Yeah. And so what they're doing is, is they're getting as many people to buy tickets 
as they can. And it's my job as a comedian, because I understand what's at stake for these comedy clubs, that I don't look at it as bitterness. I look at it as, well, if I'm not, they're willing to put in the work to run their club. If I'm not willing to put the work in to get to be what they need, then I don't deserve to work their club. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay. But, uh, but I work mostly cruise ships now because I've worked so hard that I'm finally, all my hard work has paid off where I'm getting all, a lot of bookings now. I'm booked up uh, on cruise ships until April of next year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I've got and and I've got a couple of club dates coming up. Not enough because the club is where you develop your new material. On on the ships, you can't really experiment that much. You can write all day, but you got to really do your best. You know, so now the cruise ships is kind of like the old days on the road because it's all about the, the cruise ships could care less about they don't even they you know having a million Facebook followers does not know you any good if one person complains at the front desk about your show. They they don't care. So the the thing is, I saw many comedians where their careers were almost lost uh, during the COVID when nobody knew if the ships were coming back because they didn't have a career outside of the ships. Because I started off at the bottom rung at Carnival, I was forced to develop relationships with clubs over the five years, uh, uh, three years before COVID. So when COVID happened, I had all these bookers that I could do um, virtual shows for. And then when things started opening up at like 25% capacity and you can make a couple hundred bucks for a show, Mm -hmm. um, I had all these venues to work because Mm. I, I I wasn't spoiled with just being able to fill my calendar with Carnival. Now I'm at the point where I can um, fill my calendar. And it's weird because when you work the cruise ships, it's really just about how funny you are. If people, if 300 people come see you and you kill, there'll be 400 people trying to get in the next night. Okay. Okay. You know, and and you play for 500 people, a thousand people. And they don't care if you have a website, they don't care what your videos are, you know? And so it's like, you can go there and you can just, Bring the goods. Yes, and I can see how that's attractive to someone who grew up in that environment, who grew up as a comic. In that, yeah. like you said, it's the new, it's the new idiom of being on the road because it's in, the social media is immaterial. Exactly, you do well. It happens to be. It's like a microcosm of what you were most comfortable with. That 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 template of what what stand up comedy is that exactly. you were most comfortable with in the eighties and nineties. That's fascinating, right? But most you, of us now are mature enough and 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 have, and have seen the writing on the wall that we do work on the social media and stuff because you don't want all your eggs in one basket. Sure. But you also realize that by they, nobody cares about your social media, but when those people get off the ship. They'll look you up. So now you want to be able to translate people seeing you on the ship to coming to see you in their local comedy club. Yes, because that's another opportunity, isn't it? 300 come one right. night, you crush it, 400 come the next. Are you allowed to mention your social media on stage oh, on the ship? Y- yeah, everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. Because I wonder whether that would seem kind of disloyal to the uh, the, the encapsulation no, of the experience. <laughs> no, <laughs> please, no. Please don't, don't mention the outside world, kind of thing. You know. <laughs> no, no. And you can even you can even like you can even do jokes about the cruise line and stuff. They're pretty hands off as long as you're funny and as long as you um, have common sense. You can say whatever you need to, uh, you know, because you have um, a carnival, they have, they have a program. So they're comedy educated. The other cruise lines are more difficult because they look at a comedian the same way they would judge a comedian show the same way they would judge like uh, a soul singer or, or an mm-hmm. RB singer or, or a, a world class virtuoso violinist. Sure. They go, that violinist got everybody to stand up and cry. There's only 100 pe- She had 100 people in the audience. They all stood up crying after her performance when she's talking about her, her, how she had to leave her family in the old country and, and mm-hmm. she was a adopted in america and everyone's crying and laughing how come you couldn't do that with your comedy 
Yeah, sure. Okay. You know, so yeah. so but but in 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 uh, uh, and so if one person complains, they don't care about the other thousand people that gave you a standing ovation. Whereas Carnival was forced to develop the mentality of a comedy club yeah. owner because they're running a comedy club program, so they had to learn how to protect the comedians and that they couldn't always coddle. Um, the taste of the guests because you know we have clean shows that are that where the comic has to make sure that it doesn't say anything offensive but if you come to an adult show you have to realize that if you're offended it's a matter of taste that's why we have clean shows quit your complaining shut up go to karaoke yeah gotcha gotcha what is what's the end point what's the goal for you jeff is the goal to i think some people the goal is make a load of money and then retire with you i feel like maybe the goal is to make sure you're working until the second you drop dead is that like well, my, what's my, the goal? My, my goal is to never drive uber or an amazon truck <laughs> i mean really because i have i have the luxury of having um no formal education other than um uh, i was a linguist in the army so i i speak czech and croatian and spanish and i study you know languages as a hobby and uh i i I know how to write. I know my, you know, I know how to proofread. I could work at a mag. Well, magazines don't exist anymore. So I mean, the skills that I have aren't skills that translate into a six-figure income where I can support myself in a modern economy. Mm-hmm. All I have is my stand-up. You know, so if I, some people, when they work in a crucible such as the cruise ship environment, they're constantly being graded, and and you'll say, "Oh, I can't take this. I'm being graded unfairly." What keeps me going, and maybe I gotta find an endgame. Maybe I need a little, be a little more goal oriented instead of just being a survivor. Is because I realize the reason why I don't just give up and quit comedy is I realize if I'm going on cruise ships and I think I'm being graded unfairly mm-hmm. by the cruise directors or the hotel director or whatever, and I get a bad grade and I quit. Well, you know, I'm going to go drive Uber. Well, guess what? You're going to get a lot of unfair rider ratings. <laughs> and and if you go to Domino's and deliver pizza or you go work in a restaurant, all the people are going to complain about how you brought you their soup cold. And then if you go work in a factory, your boss is going to tell you that you didn't push that button right. You didn't do that right. And I think the reason why so many young artists, actors, writers, comedians, and who start off chasing their dreams like right out of college or in the early 20s, the reason why they give up so quickly is they equate all the BS, all the crap, all the frustrations, all the malarkey, all the, 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 the insane ridiculousness of, of the business, you know, uh, they equate that with following their dream. Mm-hmm. But follow your, you know, if you think the politics of a comedy club is difficult, the, the politics of being an actor is difficult, that you think that the, that the, the audition process for getting a TV show is insane, um, go work a regular job. And so what, what you realize is that life is full of BS and any job sucks and any job has its, uh, its difficult things. And that you could, uh, but, but when you're an artist, a writer, a comedian, an actor, you have one thing that all the people, you know, driving Uber, working in a factory, other than being able to provide for their family and to create a life outside of their job, when it comes to the satisfaction of their job, we, we have to put up with all this monkey business, but we get to do what we love. Mm-hmm. And there's a price to pay for everything in life. And so many young people, when they when they start hitting roadblocks, or they deal with difficult personalities, or they're betrayed, or they're lied to, or or a, an opportunity that was a sure thing disappears overnight, they equate that to their pro- chosen profession when that's just life. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really enjoyed that. So that was Jeff. 
loads more, if you can believe it, on the Insiders feed. You can join that at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for extra content from every episode that has it, which is... These days, got to be about half. I looked, I think there's 700 hours of stuff on the ComCom feed, but I think you have to divide that by half because now we put uh, uh, episodes on it with, without the ads. So there's plenty of stuff on there. Um, get along, especially if you're a cruise ship comic. Um, thanks to Jeff for coming on the show. It, it was a great joy to have someone on the show who's a real super fan of it. And uh, he enthused to me afterwards um, about getting to hear uh, what he described, his, his words, as classic Goldsmith questions directed at him for once. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. And uh, I think that there is so much that we can all learn from, as I said at the beginning, from Jeff's kind of humility and indefatigable spirit and just complete absorption with comedy. And, and uh, long may he continue uh, in that vein. So thanks to Jeff. Um, I have a ton of other podcasts in the bag. We've got an absolute belter with Susie McCabe. We've got a fascinating podcast with uh, Sikiza. We have uh, a, a podcast with Harriet Dyer coming up soon. I've got plenty more people to invite. And we have uh, James Acaster uh, becoming the first guest to re-re-return uh, to the show. I think it's his fourth I think it's his fourth appearance. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, to James about Heckler's Welcome, uh, as well as some other bits and bobs. Also, oh, did we? Oh, I can't remember if he said that bit on or off mic. Oh, no, I'll, I'll have to check, but it's a good one. Uh, even if you only get what we said on mic, it's another blazer. So um, uh, all of that is coming up soon. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me at stuartgoldsmith.com. You can find more about the podcast at comedianscomedian.com. Big things in the works. I shall explain more about that. Uh, when I have the opportunity. So, uh, oh, that's the most annoying thing anyone can say. Big stuff, no details. Goodbye for now. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.